Hello, everyone. Welcome to Arash's World. We have a special guest today, Patrick Schmidt. How are you doing today? I'm, I'm well, thank you. How are you? Pretty good. And you know what's coming, and uh, we're going to continue with that tradition. I will ask you to briefly introduce yourself in any way you see fit, and I'm really curious to see what you would say. <laughs> okay, great. Well, uh, again, my name is Patrick Schmidt. I'm an attorney in Washington, D.C., uh, where I focus primarily on international matters uh, relating to Latin America and the Caribbean. Um, uh, a lot of my work in recent years has been on helping islands develop their renewable energy potential, which is very important for them, very important for the world really to, to have a showcase for how some of this technology can be applied in, in larger countries. So that was something I was very very proud and satisfied to have had the chance to, to work on. And um, I went to uh, Harvard College as an undergraduate, and that's where I got interested in intellectual history. Uh, back then it was called history of science. It's sort of broader now and called intellectual history and has a much more uh, a firm place in, the, in history and in general. It's recognized as a, in its own right, you know, as a field. Um, so I got interested in history of science. I did some research on uh, an experiment that Harvard started with its social sciences in mid-century. And um, later, many years later, many decades later, I decided to turn that into a book. And that's what we're going to talk about today. Yes, yes, wonderful. So you're you're actually the second attorney back to back that I've had on my podcast, and I, I sometimes also feel a bit intimidated because I think my words could be used against me at some point. But <laughs> okay. Um, so the book is uh, Harvard's uh, chaotic uh, pursuit of a new science: the rise and fall of the Department of Social Relations. Um, Already for the title, I like the reference to Don Quixote because my thesis was on Don Quixote and Madame Bovary. And my um, it was a bit odd because I, I said that uh, literature could become dangerous. Reading could become an issue when it's not channeled properly so that there's these false notions that we have about truth. And it's, it was called the literal truth and inquiry into novels and reality. And often or sometimes they don't match. So that was my thesis. And when, when I read the title of your book, it kind of brought some of that into my mind. I might be completely wrong or not, um, mm -hmm. but I'm very interested in that, especially as you're mentioning the, the research that was done in those, in those years, especially talking about the 60s. And uh, we had the psychedelics and uh, that movement and how it derailed and how things are going uh, back to another um, um, path now, which is, I think, better. But again, let's talk about it. So you, you explained your inspiration for it. So this was something research you had done previously and decided to put it into a book. Let's talk about those experiments and what do you, um, how do you feel about them? And what is some of your, what are some of your conclusions about them? Well, there are two, two, uh, different sets of experiments mm -hmm. that that gained notoriety. The one that happened in real time and that probably is more well known uh, uh, is the research that was done by Timothy Leary, yeah. the the great guru of the 1960s, who who became uh, uh, well known for his phrase. Uh, uh, turn on, tune in, drop out. Yeah. That was his catchphrase. Um, he came to Harvard in 1959. And at that point, he was a mainstream psychologist. Um, he was working on personality. He was a clinical psychologist, which means he was concerned with helping people in, in everyday life. Mm -hmm. It wasn't just some abstract sort of research. He, he, it was applied sort of psychology. And he was brought to Harvard in 1959 uh, to get things going in the words of the faculty member who brought him in. And of course he did get things going, but not quite in the way that- uh, They had envisioned, right? They, they had envisioned, something right. completely different, yeah. So he, he came uh, to Harvard in 1959, as I said, um, 
very charismatic fellow, uh, well-liked, but he immediately started doing research that was not, shall we say, um, well-controlled. It wasn't very rigorous research. And then that summer, after he had started at Harvard, he went down to Mexico and he tried the uh, magic mushrooms for mm -hmm. the first time. Mm -hmm. uh, and this was a revelation to him. He thought this was something that could help mankind. It could solve many of mankind's problems, not just sort of uh, individuals who had psychological problems. And he was just convinced that this was the future of, of the world. Um, so when he came back, he said, I'm going to study this at Harvard. And he started something called the Harvard Psilocybin Project. And that he, he basically had three different types of experiments that he did. One was he gave, and I should I should tell you how he got hold of the psilocybin. He he because it was it was impractical to give the mushroom to people. So what had happened was there was a drug company called Sandoz who uh, synthesized the active ingredient in, in the magic mushroom. And Leary sent a letter off to Sandoz on Harvard Stationery asking if he could get a supply of the synthesized drug for his research. That's all he said. And they sent him a huge, huge bottle. Uh, bottle, is, it's, it's, it was much bigger than that, a huge supply of the psilocybin and said, well, good luck and let us know how it goes. It was, it was not a very scientific exchange. I mean, it was all quite uh, loose. Um, so he had this, he had this- We consider that like a sample? They were giving like, you know, try- well, it, it wasn't, it was a huge supply. I mean, he used it for years. I mean, giving out the-, the, the, the He paid the, for it? Was that like business- No, out? no, I don't, he didn't okay. even pay for it. Okay, I mean, so large sample. <laughs> yeah, 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 I mean, just said oh. here, you know, because he was at Harvard, I guess they thought, okay, well, this is great. You know, some Harvard guy is, is researching huh. using our drug. So, you know, more power to him. And, and at the point we want to point out the drugs were still legal. Yes, yes, yes. yeah, yeah. Yes. LSD also. Um, nobody really knew, or the general public didn't, was not aware of psychedelic drugs yet. This was 59, now 60. And um, but they were doing research on on various drugs at the time still, right? They were using not not these ones, not specifically, but other types of drugs where they're doing research, or is that like just completely new new terrain for everyone? I don't know if if other people were were doing some research on on you know other psychedelic drugs. Um, it, it I, I think he was one of the first to really dive you know, deeply into it. Um, I mean, Freud used cocaine and he was open about it at the time. So the, the view of drugs. Oh, yeah, yeah. If you look, different. if you look back, yeah. And, and having a, you know, look back and take a expansive, you know, definition of drugs. Mm -hmm. Even William James, the famous yeah, revered Harvard professor, he was, he was, I think it was nitrous oxide. He was, he was inhaling that mm -hmm. to get, you know, a high and then, you know his his visions. He would he would uh, write about it. Aldous Huxley, who eventually was at MIT, he yeah. also was. I think his drug of choice was mescaline. Mescaline, yeah. And he wrote the Doors of Perception. Perception. Yeah. If, if yeah. You have that yeah. title right. And Huxley and Leary met up. I mm -hmm. mean, yeah, they did. As, as yeah. Leary as Leary started to do his research. Huxley was down the street, really, at MIT. Mm -hmm. So they got together for lunch. And Leary said, hey, I, I'm going to start doing this research. What do you think? And Huxley was, at the beginning, he was he thought it was a good idea. But then he he became a bit disenchanted with Leary because he was not as um, as rigorous in his research yes. as he might be. Yeah. But yeah, so those those people connected. And, mm -hmm. and it's, it's a, interesting at Harvard, William James, you know, using a drug to expand his consciousness, so to speak. And then Leary... You know, uh, you know, sixty years later, uh, was was uh, doing the same thing, and 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 when Leary was attacked for his research, he invoked the name of William James. Oh no! <laughs> he, said, no Harvard, he said, "No, Harvard should be doing this. It should be proud it's doing this." 
because it's in the tradition of William James. So, so there, there are some theories that the ancient Greeks also might have used uh, similar types of, uh, of, of, of drugs uh, to get intoxicated, to get those grand ideas and the consciousness. I mean, I, it's not really proven, but there are some, some theories about that. So it's, it's, it's been going on in the tradition closely linked to philosophy and psychology and expansion of the mind. Um, but what went wrong? Is it like, was uh, Timothy Leary overzealous? Was he just like, what did it affect him as well? I mean, we, we see studies with, with psychologists who, who fall for, for it, who get caught up in their studies, like Zimbardo, who got confused about like, this is an experiment, but he took it very seriously. Is that something that happened to Timothy Leary as well? Would you think that he just got like swept away and sidetracked of like what the goal was actually? Well, he, well, as I mentioned, he from the very beginning, he just really believed that this was a solution to mm -hmm. many problems. Mm -hmm. So in that sense, he was a true believer. But he also, you're correct, he ingested a lot <laughs> of the drugs. Mm -hmm. And that was one of the criticisms of him at Harvard, is that he was taking the drugs with the subjects sometimes mm -hmm. in these very loose informal settings uh, where he, he, he gave the drugs to people. So that was one of the criticisms. And um, I would also mention, I should mention his partner in this mm -hmm. uh, was Richard Alpert, who later became known as Ram Das, uh, Baba Ram Das. Mm -hmm. uh, and and uh, uh, Alpert was already at Harvard, but he became totally, as I said in the book, beguiled by Timothy Leary. He just thought, you know, he, he was sort of charmed by him. And he, he, along with Leary, were, were doing these experiments. And um, so it was not just Leary, but uh, Leary and Alpert, and they were both criticized for taking a lot of the drugs. And there was a very... Uh, uh, a large conference, in fact, one of the most important conferences on, on, on personality, psychology, and I think it was in Denmark. And um, Leary and Alport spoke at the conference and they were praising drug, psychedelic drugs as a solution. And, and a lot of the people in the audience said it was pretty clear they were both high at the time <laughs> on the drug. We'll never know for sure, but that was the reaction of some of the people in, in the audience. You know. Yeah, that's uh, that's really fascinating. But there there was also the the dark side of some of those experiments with with Henry Murray, uh, or who who did uh, the experiment with uh, who would become the Unabomber, uh, Theodore Kaczynski. And so, um, um, was there? A, how did that happen? Was there not enough oversight, or did not? I mean, you probably ha we have to go through through the process of getting those uh, those studies approved. Uh, is that correct? Well, we have to put it in the context of the time. At the, you know, in in the late 1950s, uh, early 60s, there really weren't. There was no the ethics board at we that have time, now. right? The Zimbardo, yeah. who like I think really pushed the limits. So I think after him, where they you had to get approval and and all that, yeah. right? So it was more loose and free, yeah. and do whatever they wanted, basically. Yeah, oh. there was this, there were what what was known as the Nuremberg um, rule uh, or regulation that you needed to get the consent of, of the people you were doing the research on, mm -hmm. you, you needed to explain what it was you were doing and get their consent. That was really the only sort of rule that was out there at the time. And, um, but in the case of Henry Murray, he, he even violated that rule <laughs> because at the time, Ted Kaczynski, brilliant, he got into Harvard when he was 16 years old. Mm -hmm. He was a genius in, in, in math and science. And when he was recruited by Murray to do this experiment, um, he was 17. And so Murray needed to get Kaczynski's mother's permission to do the experiment. But he didn't explain to his mother what the experiment was about. He just said something very vague about this is to help understand you know, mankind better, something very vague, which of course was not what the experiment was about at all. Um, and that was very sad because his mother thought by giving permission, this might help her son, which she acknowledged he had, he was very shy. He had problems adjusting. And she thought, oh, these nice 
psychologists are going to help my son. And of course, you know, nothing could be further from the truth in, in what actually happened. So we have to put it in context of the time. There weren't really the regulations there are now, but even so, Murray violated the one rule that was was out there. Um, so, you know, sadly. The um, the experiment, I, I've seen bits of it or I've read about it, and it's just like horrifying. And it just, uh, I, I don't understand how, uh, especially a psychologist, would do something like that. I understand it's for the science and you're trying to push limits. Uh, even like Milgram, okay, I kind of understand what he's trying to show us there about understanding human nature. But th there has to be a certain amount of like, em limits and empathy for, for the, the subjects. And uh, I, I really don't understand how they didn't and this went on for three years the experiment uh, yeah, yeah. which is like you know at some point you do have to realize that there's something off or you know in conversations with others with colleagues and so on and so I'm wondering if the uh, there was also uh, government uh, research done with the CIA. I mean, I know they were very interested in in the drugs and the psychedelics and these kind of experiments to to see what they can do with it, maybe as a truth serum or maybe, you know, as uh, being able to read minds and telekinesis and that kind of stuff. Um, was there uh, is that documented that there was also a push from the government to to research it with uh, hand in hand with Harvard? Well, um, as far as Henry Murray goes, there was very, very definitely a government connection. I thought so, which yeah. dates back to World War II. He was one of the principal psychologists for the Office of Strategic Services, which was the precursor to the CIA. <laughs> and his main uh, research then, and his contribution to the war effort, was how do you how do you break down. A, a spy, like if we captured a spy, how do you break them down? Mm -hmm. Or how do you test our recruits to see who would make a good spy? Who, who could withhold or withstand rather uh, interrogation, tough interrogation tactics? So this was his, his field of study at the CIA, which he was starting, you know, back in the early 1940s. Well, he was, this was the same research he was doing in the late 50s at Harvard, except he was using students. Mm -hmm. He was doing this research. How do you break people down? Yeah. That's what he was all about. Mm -hmm. And so there was now, I don't know that at the time he was, I don't think he, I don't believe he was working with the CIA in the late 1950s with respect to the research he did at Harvard. I, I'm, I'm sure he was in contact with them, but I, I don't think there was a link. In fact, there doesn't seem to be any link. He didn't publish his work. Uh, the, 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 his uh, assistants, um, research assistants, said he had no plan to publish his, his research. It was very, um, um, you know, there wasn't really a, an agenda in terms of what he was going to do with the research. Well, what was the point then? Well, uh, it's unclear what he was going to do with it. Uh, one of his research assistants said that uh, uh, Professor Murray was not the most systematic scientist. So uh, now maybe he had a plan in his mind for what he was going to do with the research, publish it or whatever. But at the time, uh, his research assistants were unaware of any any sort of goal, you know, uh, with, with that particular research. So and all of this, I should say, came out much later, unlike Timothy Leary, which happened, which got in the New York Times, uh, sort of was a springboard to opening the eyes of America to psychedelic drugs. That's what this department and this research and Timothy Leary did. I mean, I, I, Harvard was kind of the launching pad in a lot of ways for the, 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 the counterculture, you know, uh, the 1960s. Henry Murray, that didn't come out until 1990, in the 1992 or, or thereabouts or 1996, somewhere in the 1990s, mm. it came out that he was doing this research. Uh, there should have been more oversight, though, at this point. Well, yeah. I mean, at, at the time, again, there was not much regulation. Uh, so it was quite an eye-opener when this came out in the, in the 90s that uh, Murray had, had done this research. And, of course, Ted Kaczynski then uh, had been you know, captured, and uh, it became an issue in his trial. Uh, his brother, who turned in 
Ted Kaczynski, wrote about the experiments and what Harvard had done. And I'm not saying that Henry Murray created the Unabomber. I'm not saying that at all. We don't we don't know what effect it had on 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 Kaczynski. He called it the the the, the worst experience of his life. That's the way he referred to it. And he also said in the in the last year of the experiment, he said that coincided with his disillusionment with society. Mm -hmm. So we know we have those statements, but so I'm, I'm not saying at all Murray created the Unabomber. It's just, it, it was quite a traumatic experience and it was an unfortunate experience that happened. And it was, these two incidents of research were, were, were you know, they were black eyes for this department. Mm -hmm. And um, they they really created this image of the department that it was a bit loose in terms of its its uh, approach to to you know the academy to research and and so on and so forth. So they it 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 also detracted from the main goal of the department, which was to try to find a uh, a, a new science to study human behavior. And these were distractions, unfortunate distractions, and they they ultimately helped hasten the downfall of the department because you know uh, well not Murray because it happened afterwards, but Deliri was a black eye that uh, people at Harvard were questioning. Well, what's going on with this department? You know what what what's going on over there? With these and stuff? and it's unfortunate because it, it really backfired, and you you have this like drive, and I, I think Huxley was, or, or even like people around him were not happy with that. Say, let's keep it for our research. Let's not open it up for to to the public, and and that's actually the move currently too, where they want to decriminalize it, not legalize it, but decriminalize it in in Oregon, and they're doing the um this new in initiative. I think ballot measure uh, 109 that it becomes legal to use uh, psychedelics or especially um, magic mushrooms um, to to do for research for therapeutic uses and it does have that and that's documented and I I, I watched uh, recently um, how to change your mind Michael Pollan's uh, yeah. a documentary yeah. which is amazing yeah. and so I and it I knew a lot of this already myself and I, I do have personal experiences with uh, with some of those uh, substances that I can uh, relate to. And I think, but we don't want to use it recreationally. We don't want to open it up as, as we did, uh, the same mistake that Timothy Leary did. And I think at that point, I mean, it's easy to, to judge now from our point of view and what we see now from our vantage point. But I think uh, it's, it's really important to really study and research it first and then kind of uh, open it up if possible for others. Would you agree with that? Uh, yeah, I agree. And I, I would also point out the great irony is that Harvard has recently started to study again, yeah. psilocybin. Yeah. <laughs> uh, there's a project uh, that Harvard is doing at Massachusetts General Hospital. Um, it's called, if I, I just kind of want to make sure I get the name of, the, of it correctly, um, but it's a, it's the Center for Neuroscience. Is that uh, the Center for Neuroscience uh -huh. and Psychedelics? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mass General, and it's a Harvard Medical School professor, Jeffrey Rosenbaum, who's heading it. So I think Timothy Leary would find this all quite uh, <laughs> uh, funny that uh, all these years later, now Harvard is researching, uh, but they're doing the research in the way it it. It should be done. I mean, should, they're should have been done as well. Yeah. And and um, you know, so you know, uh, there is a great irony still, though, that it's that okay. Harvard is, is undertaking this. And there's some criticism of of Leary in the sense that he he set he set research back mm -hmm. because mm -hmm. he he went off in a way that was not controlled, and he he there was there created a lot of stigma with these drugs. So researchers then stayed away from it. Mm -hmm. longer than they might have otherwise. Mm -hmm. That's one line of argument against another line of argument against Leary that he he actually, although he had a vision for how it could be helpful, he created this stigma around the drugs and it kept researchers away from it uh, longer than they otherwise might have 
have done. So yeah, exactly. It backfired again. And uh, Berkeley also has a center for the science of psychedelics, and where they actually have like uh, training programs. Apart from research, they train professionals to use it in a variety of different fields. And so it's it's really opened up in in that sense that uh, we're doing research. So do you do you think that this time around? we will all get it right. They will get it right. Are you hopeful? Or do you think it could get uh, derailed and sidetracked again? No, I mean, look, I think if you have institutions like Berkeley, Harvard, uh, uh, others, New York University, I, I believe, Johns Hopkins is also mm -hmm. researching this. So look, these are some of the best research institutions in the world. <laughs> and, and the medical schools are now involved. That's the other thing. I mean, Leary was not a, a, a medical doctor, okay? <laughs> And I think when you're looking at these substances that affect your brain, I mean, it's, it's important to have the medical schools yeah. involved yeah. in it. Yeah. Um, and, uh, uh, and so I think it's all be, you know, I'm not a scientist, but I, I, when you have research institutions of this caliber looking at it uh, with the standards that they have, I mean, I think this is, um, this is you know, the way it should be done. And yeah, I'm, I'm hopeful that's, that something good will come out of it. Uh, particularly for for things like uh, post-traumatic stress disorder, mm -hmm. all, all sorts of things. There's encouraging research uh, in, the, in that in, the, in that area among among others. And it's it's also politically there. It's also very hopeful because both sides of the aisles are actually approving it for different reasons. But uh, we also have uh, the right who is funding uh, a lot of the research too, in terms of for red, veterans for post-traumatic disorders. So in in that sense. And uh, I think it's it's really important to to unite and bridge differences and create that common ground of making sure that we do research, we do it properly, and not to alienate others. And so at, at this point, it's rare to have that kind of uh, common ground. And that's a question I asked uh, Michael Pollan at a press conference, and he said, yes, this is like one of those rare instances yeah. where we agree with each other. And I think we should further that and uh, not uh, alienate others, but just make sure that everybody's on board so that uh, we take away maybe the, the schedule one uh, uh, like substance, the, the drug that's really dangerous and kind of try to get rid of that stigma that was uh, that built on, uh, on it for, for various decades now. And if we look at uh, just at the beginning of uh, marijuana, for example, reefer madness and those kind of like propaganda that was going on, misrepresenting facts and science uh, back then and scaring off people uh, from these substances. And now it's legal in Canada, it's legal. And, um, and it's, it's confusing for, I understand people would say, well, how is this? A substance that was illegal for such a long time that causes all this harm to my mind and body and everything and now it's fine and you can buy it from the government so this is this is very confusing that kind of shift of getting rid of the stigma yeah yeah but i think i think things are as i said it's in the hands of some very capable research institutions and uh, uh it's getting the scrutiny it it deserves but it's also it's it's you know there's a the, the stigma is lifting. I mean, you have mm -hmm. people like Pollan and his books <laughs> and his his speaking. Um, so yeah, I. But, I, but it, there is a, the overzealousness, that enthusiasm is still there. I mean, I, I watched the program and it's like a lot of it I agree with and I can relate to based again on personal experiences. But the way it's presented, like you do it once and you're, you're healed of your trauma and you cure, it doesn't really work that way. So it's like, there's like a lot of optimism going around too. And we have to just keep it in balance and make sure that, yes, it is powerful. It can help, but it also takes patience and work and uh, it's not going to lead to immediate success. I think we right. have to remind ourselves, but it didn't seem like that. It was more like, seems like advertisement for it. And then at some point, the, the last episode seemed to go into political discussions and it was politicized. And uh, although I agree with, with the issues raised, but I could see people being alienated by that and saying, wait, oh, they're trying to brainwash me or it's you know an agenda here. And I think we should really focus just on the science and the benefits that it can bring and just forget all the rest about it. I know there's been abuse and it, it came from Mexico and it affected those towns. It's true, it's true. But let's not 
you know, let's just focus on the good parts where we can unite everyone. And I was a bit uh, let down by by that approach, you know, of trying to educate while you also try to convince people, while you also try, it's like trying to juggle too many things. And I don't think it would work necessarily. Yeah, well, I think with anything new, you know, uh, it takes a while for the things to sort of shake out and settle mm -hmm. down. And, mm -hmm. and the public, uh, you know, the pendulum kind of goes yes, it does. Uh, back and forth yes, very does. quickly and far too easily. And, and there's so much, uh, disinformation and misinformation yes. out there that it, it'll it'll take a while for things to shake out and for the and for the facts to really you know take hold but again i'm confident with with the research that's being done with uh by these institutions by by uh, people as grounded as pollen um that uh yeah i think the facts you know will out whether you know, whichever whichever way that goes, mm -hmm. it's not a good trajectory at the moment. But yeah, so it'll take a while. But you're right. I mean, the 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 public just swings back <laughs> and forth far too easily on on this and many other things. With an instance, sometimes, yeah, that's yeah, true. Yeah, and yeah. and but you talk about rise and fall. And uh, would you say that it's again rise again? So because it, it would that note be included in in your in your. Uh, observations that yes we tried the experiment in department of social relations we we tried the interdisciplinary uh department and um is it like a reboot now where we can make it better or do you think that again don quixote comes to mind do you think this is a futile attempt we're trying something like uh, captain ahab trying to grab moby dick and never does or do you think that it's possible we just have to fine tune it enough? Well, on the, on the, on my choice of uh, uh, Quixotic for the title, mm -hmm. the reason I chose that is because I mean some people see Quixotic as a, a pejorative term, but I see it as meaning something that is idealistic. Okay, I like that. But unrealistic. I like that too. <laughs> Noble but unrealistic. And yeah. I think that's what these Harvard professors were, were, were trying to do. They, this was the end of World War II. There had been a lot of research during World War II where these different social scientists worked together, cultural anthropologists, sociologists, mm -hmm. psychologists. They worked together on issues of, you know, trying to figure out the morale of the mm -hmm. Japanese, mm -hmm. like if we if we did X, what would the Japanese do, or what would the Germans do, what would Hitler do? They they were doing from afar. They were trying to figure out these, you know, big questions, and um, it also even went down to how do you sell war bonds, how how do you convince the public to buy war bonds? So they all of a sudden this was a big change in mid-century America that all of a sudden psychologists, anthropologists, sociologists were like a big deal. They were becoming a big deal. Before they were kind of, they, they were not really paid a great attention to, but now they were contributing to the, the war effort. And when the war ended, a lot of these professors who had been involved in the war effort said, hey, we, we don't need these different departments separated from one another. <laughs> we should all work together. That's how we generate progress. Mm -hmm. And and of course, they were also a lot of these. Some of these people were very unhappy in the existing departments, particularly psychology, mm -hmm. because there were uh, a huge, huge uh, uh, fight between the two camps, the two different types of psychologists at Harvard. So. Uh, they proposed this department, and Harvard agreed to do it in 1946. Um, so, but they hadn't really thought it through. I mean, they—they, they, if you're going to create a new science, which is what they promise, a science that would be more important than history, government, and economics in explaining human behavior, you better have more of a theoretical foundation, which they didn't have. Mm -hmm. They had a great idea. They had some internal memos that they had done, but they didn't have enough to really create a department. And then uh, they they did try with a lot of money from the Carnegie Endowment, uh, a huge sum of money, 
Then they, 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 three years after the department was founded, they tried to create this theory mm -hmm. and they spent two to three years researching and writing and, and that, that book they produced also failed. I mean, mm -hmm. they, they just, they, they just couldn't put these different pieces together in a way that made sense. So once that failed in 1951, that book uh, came out, they basically just continued as, as a department, many departments within one department. It was like, okay, you had the psychologists here, the, the anthropologists here, and they didn't really work together that much. Mm -hmm. um, so, but because they had all these superstars of the 20th century, social sciences, you know, Harvard, you know, kind of let it go. And the professors were happy. They were still doing great work. Mm -hmm. I don't, I'm not denigrating any of them. They mm -hmm. did incredible work, but it just wasn't interdisciplinary. Mm -hmm. It was more multidisciplinary. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Which is not the goal, which is yeah. not the goal. Something I've gotten into very much is a holistic view. And I think it's really important. And we can apply that to departments like that. So in, in terms of uh because there is that competition, you because the psychologist is like, oh, we are we are right. And then the economists would say, no, we are correct. And and so to to find it like these are parts, and then we want to look at the whole and kind of unity among the different parts. So as you're saying, instead of multi, make it interdisciplinary and work together on, on that common ground, those bridges that we need to cross. And that will help everyone. And I, I think like science is, is catching up and the, the theory of like trying to have one theory for everything is it's tough. And um, you have uh, things that Einstein says that are hundred years later proven correct. Um, and we're still lagging with Sigmund Freud, and I, I think he's correct on many, many issues. And um, it's just also we talk about unconscious bias, and I just like smile and think, well, Freud would have a field day too, and he would laugh and say, these are things that I talked about hundred more than hundred years ago, and now you're finally acknowledging it in terms of science too. It's proven there is that unconscious part of the brain. So. Um, I, I think it's that openness also to to go in a direction that you thought was wrong as a scientist, but you say, well, there is evidence and we have to switch our paradigm and shift it in the direction that uh, is correct. And science is constantly evolving, right? You don't have to stick to the same idea and you shouldn't, obviously. We want to uh, uh, learn new things about human nature, especially, and that's hard to study to begin with. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, yeah, and there there are, I think it's very hard to do something that's truly interdisciplinary. There are, there are issues, like biochemistry, for example, mm -hmm. is a field, you know, mm -hmm. there's behavioral economics mm -hmm. now, which, you know, uses some uh, elements of psychology in it. But um, it's, it's really difficult to have something that's truly interdisciplinary. That doesn't mean you shouldn't try. Mm -hmm. It just, it, in, in the context of a university setting, well, okay, how do you structure yeah. that? Yeah. Is it better just to let the professors work together if they choose to work together instead of trying to incorporate it in, a, in an academic structure like a department or mm -hmm. some universities do it in an institute? Um, and, and a lot of universities kind of throw the term around interdisciplinary without really thinking through, okay, what does this really mean? What are we really trying to do? Is it just sound good? You know, we will put interdisciplinary on it and today. Mm -hmm. uh, so there's a whole element to to that in terms of the academy and and what universities should do or shouldn't do with respect to uh, these sorts of ventures. And uh, but in terms of what was done with the Department of Social Relations, um, they they still did great work uh, and had great faculty um but yeah it just it just didn't it just didn't work out but we've been having specialization so we're becoming more and more specific and the idea of a renaissance man does not exist anymore at this time it's impossible because of the wealth of knowledge that we do have but i think we have to switch that too and saying like not just like just dig into your own field, but have a, a wider picture and a wider lens of seeing other fields as well that you can you can incorporate. And it's it's I think it's more also a shift in, in paradigms of seeing the world differently, of of more like 
the, instead of just focusing on one thing and seeing the, the whole picture. And uh, I think that's important to do. Although both are valid and both are important, but we're missing out on the on the whole picture thing. And that that kind of drive, as you say, uh, idealistic but unrealistic. I think there is it. There might be a chance. We have to try. You know, we have to try yeah. to figure out whether it's possible or not. And I and and you seem to encourage that. And I completely agree. And I think we can it just we're just missing perhaps a piece of the puzzle that would come to us through somehow <laughs> aliens whatever somehow we will get that missing piece and then uh um but to keep looking for it i think that's yeah, it. I, I would say this that it, it, i on a positive note i would say that some of the some of the uh, students that were trained by the department people who got their phd in that from the Department of Social Relations, they incorporated this approach in their research. Mm -hmm. So they there was a benefit and there was a uh, kind of a, a life after after the department because and and I will I will mention a very well known professor at Harvard Graduate School of Education, Howard Gardner, oh, yeah. who, who was a who, who was an undergraduate at Harvard in social relations. Mm -hmm. Then he went and got his PhD also in the department. Mm -hmm. He's a social psychologist, cognitive psychologist, developmental psychologist, brilliant man. And he he incorporates this exactly. kind of holistic approach. Yeah, he does. Okay, so there were there were benefits from this department and you can but see he was it. frowned upon he wasn't accepted and they didn't say it's not scientific but uh, and uh, th there was criticism of, of this point of view um yeah. My knowledge. But, yeah but i but i think in terms of individual uh researchers who 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 kind of they came out of social relations with this mindset of okay we've got to we've got to try to bring in what we can from these different disciplines mm -hmm. and they, they put it together in their own research so okay there was no okay there was no interdisciplinary science but individuals kind of became interdisciplinary in their own minds mm -hmm. you know they mm -hmm. from, yes. what i'm trying to say yeah, yeah, and absolutely. howard gardner is a perfect example of that and uh and he talks about the influence of this approach in his research and he he credits uh the department for giving him that, he credits particular uh, professors, uh, David Reisman, who was a very important professor to me, a well-known sociologist. Uh, professor Gardner credits uh, Jer Jerome Bruner, the father of the co or cognitive revolution, uh, and um, Eric Erickson, the <laughs> lay analyst, who was yeah. also on the faculty yeah. of social relations. So these were men who were definitely interdisciplinary in their mm -hmm. approach yes. but it was sort of it was within their own their own uh minds that they were interdisciplinary they, they didn't work with others and create a science but their approach was definitely interdisciplinary and that may be where you know where the uh, continuing benefit is in this and we see that now with multiple intelligences and emotional intelligence. And, and this is like intelligence, is a topic that people are very uncomfortable with when it comes to themselves, you know, as, as a parent too, I know it's like, okay, intelligent, my son is intelligent, is not intelligent. And so th those kind of, uh, we're very concerned about that. So then we do have the genetic view. They say, yeah, it's, it's all genetics and so on. It's mostly genetics at least. And then uh, psychologists say, no, it's really the environment, but both are right. You know, and it's it's again that kind of common ground. It's like, yes, you are right, you are right. Now let's work together and come up with a unified theory where both are correct, but again, it depends. Yeah, and and that was the problem, one of the big problems at Harvard in the 1920s and the 1930s, particularly in the psychology department, because you had the prevailing view of psychology at that time <laughs> was experimental psychology or behavioral psychology. And that you you could only study what you could measure. Mm -hmm. Yes. Therefore, yeah. the unconscious was off the table. Yeah. We could not even think about it because you couldn't measure it. Well, that was completely the opposite of what Henry Murray, Gordon Allport, what we think of psychology now, yeah. we think of it's completely focused on the unconscious mm -hmm. and your fears, your phobias 
you know, all those things. Uh, but at the time in the twenties and thirties, uh, psychology was primarily experimental psychology. So B.F. Skinner, uh, who was a, a graduate student in psychology at Harvard at the time, for example, if there's an anecdote about him that if, if somebody even started to talk about the unconscious around B.F. Skinner, he would pretend like he didn't hear them. Yeah. It, was, it was a version of this, you know? I mean, he, that's how much he disdain he had for any discussion of the unconscious. Because so that, it goes counter to what he was talking about, because if it's true, then all his theories don't work necessarily, you know? So it's, it's that kind of fear also. It's like, I hope it's not true. Let's not pay attention to it. I'm yeah. psychoanalyzing uh, uh, well, Skinner here. There was this, there was this either or, okay, it has to be uh -huh, all yeah. behavioral psychology, mm -hmm. or it has to be all what we call, you know, clinical psychology or, 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 you know, uh you know psychoanalysis yeah. you know and and no i mean they they, they exactly. both have things to offer yes. and um but at, at harvard it was it, the, the lines were clearly drawn and um they um that was uh that was part of the problem and these psychologists weren't even speaking to each other they were in the same department and they mm -hmm. weren't even speaking to each other and so that's the that same department, great. right? So that's the same yeah. department. And then we we'll talk about interdisciplinary department where they're from different departments. So that's why we see how it's failing, right? Or it's hard to do. It's, yeah. Well, yeah. at least in the interdisciplinary approach, everybody sort of had the same. Uh, they were from dis different disciplines, but they at least agreed to try to make it interdisciplinary. Mm -hmm. Psychology at Harvard in the 20s and 30s was, there was no agreement. I mean, they... They, you could even say they hated each other. They, 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 the people like B.F. Skinner looked at somebody like Henry Murray as kind of a mystic, a cultist. Yeah. I mean, what are you doing? That's voodoo. You're, you're, you're trying to figure out what's in somebody's mind, and that's not scientific. Mm -hmm. What are you doing at Harvard? What are you doing in a, what are you doing as a professor at all? I mean, that's the way they, view that that was a those were the battle lines uh at harvard and so the only solution or part of the solution was for these psychologists to like henry murray and the, the people who were interested in the unconscious to go into a, a separate department altogether just mm -hmm. split split mm -hmm. the psychologists mm -hmm. from one another and that's that's part of what harvard did yeah mm -hmm. And psychoanalysis split in many different parts and sections as well. And so I, I find it interesting because Otto Rank, the secretary, um, secretary of Freud, became a, a psychoanalyst a analyst as well and started criticizing Freud, which was again, and Freud got upset and just kind of like booted him out. It's like anybody who trained under Otto Rank is it's not valid anymore. And it was just like really nasty. But the point was actually pretty good. The point that um, Otto Rank makes, he says, we're using introspection as psychoanalysts to get to a certain knowledge about the self. And then we unified in a theory and then we project that onto our, our, our patients or clients. And so, but we don't take into account their own introspection. So it's like you get something by looking at yourself, you come up with a theory, and that theory is that everybody has to follow that theory. You just don't give credit to that person's experiences, internal experiences and reflections and introspection. So it's it's really hard to do, and it's not helping the other person because that's what worked for you, and again, a holistic view, but it might not be working for the other person. And that makes it hard to, so what Otto Rank talks about is the soul. We need to look at the soul, though he didn't believe in the soul, to my knowledge, but he said we should be striving for that. And that brings my to mind what you're saying, the idealistic, although it might not exist, but we still need to look for it. And Otto Rank has a very similar view of that. It's like, psyche is the soul, and that's what we should be looking for. And Freud was too much... Uh, into biology he tried to he was kind of the the Skinner type of uh, of psychoanalyst and then Jung was too religious and too open and again that becomes a bit wishy-washy if you take it in the extreme direction and it should be somewhere in between yeah and yeah. and it's really 
it, it and I'm, I discuss this in the book that it, it's it's hard to imagine now that the Freudian language, Jungian language, is so much part of our lexicon. Yes, like we talk about the id, the superego, mm -hmm. Oedipus complex, all these things. They're second nature. Everybody uses them in their language. But in the 1920s and the 30s, this was revolutionary. Yes. I mean, and, and so controversial. What Freud was doing, what Jung was doing, it was, it, it's hard to imagine just how controversial it was at the time. So that's why these these battles were so so fierce. Yeah. And and Henry Murray had undergone analysis with Jung himself. I mean, yeah. they they and Alpert had met Freud. Uh, the, these people were there at the beginning <laughs> of, of this, you know. And um, so, yeah, it's really hard. It's it's hard to imagine now the the fury that this caused within the academy because all of a sudden you had the sleepy psychology and then all of a sudden Freud burst on the scene, mm -hmm. turning everything upside down. <laughs> and there was a lot of resistance to that. Mm -hmm. And that's what causes uh, this, 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 these fierce fights at Harvard uh, even more than any other university, frankly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, that's no, that's wonderful. I just want also one one final question I'd like to ask you is how does uh, this book and your research fit into your work and uh, your profession or it doesn't? Is it like something else like as being being an attorney and how, how does that fit into your your overall uh, goals, aims and so on? Or is it a, a kind of side project, a passion project of yours? No, I, it's really uh, a passion project. Okay, wonderful. Yeah. yeah. I, I mean, my work as a lawyer, <clears throat> I like to think of myself as as uh, being interdisciplinary in my uh -huh. approach as a lawyer because I, I, I work on things that have um, <clears throat> an ele elements other than just the law in them. You know, um, you know I've, I've worked on... Uh, speech writing for some of my clients. I help write white papers for my clients. I help uh, them, you know, with you know, with their image internationally. So I, I you know, I try to be interdisciplinary in my approach. But it really, there's no connection between the two. I just, I just love intellectual history. Uh, I, I thought what what these men, and at the time it was all men. I have to say, you know, <laughs> back in the 20s and 30s. Uh, I, you know, I have great respect for them mm -hmm. uh, and, and what Harvard was trying to do. It didn't work out, but it was still a valuable uh, attempt. But really, there's no connection with my mm -hmm. with my uh, legal work. No, and, and that's wonderful. And that's again, as you say, interdisciplinary. And I I, I highly uh, applaud that. And thank you for for doing that. Um, the book is again uh, uh, Harvard's Quixotic or Quixotic. The Spanish. You speak Spanish, by the way. Yes, I do. Okay, I, perfect. I lived in Spain for a time. So oh, wonderful. So Harvard's Quixotic. Pursuit of a new science, the rise and fall of the Department of Social Relations. We are looking at, at Harvard. We talk about the history. Such an awesome discussion, enlightening discussion. And thank you so much for being on Rash's World. Thank you for having me. It was Wonderful. a great pleasure. Thank you.